If you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We read chapter 19 of Exodus. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, 
lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bruce. Good morning. It's good to be with y'all this morning. Travis, did I pronounce that uh, y'all correctly? Good? Okay. Travis told me just yesterday that English is the only language in the world that does not have a unique word for, is that second person plural? Uh, And uh, southern states have corrected for this. And I'm going to help Travis and Jessica as they have now lived here one year to... uh, Correct up here as well. So let us begin in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just heard Exodus 19 read, which is a glorious passage of how you met with people, with your people at Sinai. God, may your Holy Spirit open our ears, help us to understand what you would have us learn from Exodus 19 as we are gathered in your name this morning. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. In the year 165, in the Greek seaside village of Smyrna on the Aegean coast, there is recorded an event that still speaks volumes today. Polycarp, who was bishop of Smyrna, had been offered one possibility to avoid a torturous death, and it is recorded as follows. Then the proconsul urging him and saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? My king and my savior. The last recorded words of Polycarp, a first century Christian. Kingship has always been a central biblical theme. It should not surprise us to find it anywhere in the Bible, not least here in Exodus. Bible scholars, as they have tried to express one centering theme for the whole of the Bible, typically arrive at three options. Salvation, you see that here. Salvation is a wonderful single theme you can use throughout the Bible. Uh, expressed beautifully in Exodus. Covenant is another option. uh, Our Bibles, our English translations do that already for us. They divide it into Old Old Testament, New Testament, uh, with the Testament translating uh, to translation of covenant. And thirdly, the kingdom of God. All three themes, all three of these themes are woven into the fabric of of Exodus chapter 19. They are all here, resulting in theological fireworks as well as the thundering and lightning that is described as occurring above Mount Sinai. 
Of these three themes, the best single of these, I believe, is the kingdom of God. Why? Because kings make covenants, as we will see this morning. Kings make covenants. They also protect. Kings save. Kings bring security to their people. Historians recognize in the covenant made at Sinai what they have termed the covenant treaty form. The form was used in this age of earthly kings and kingdoms, and it was an agreement between the great king, also known as the suzerain, and their vassals, those who lived under their protection and in their service. We have examples of treaties between Hittite kings and their vassals and others in the ancient world as well. The way that it worked is a copy of the treaty was was deposited in the vassal shrine and at regular intervals it was read publicly to remind the vassal of the obligations assumed and the oath of loyalty taken. The covenant treaty form was expressed as follows. The covenant begins with a preamble in which the king identifies himself. Then a prologue in which the king reviews prior relationships between himself and the vassal. There is typically an I-thou form of address as the king speaks to his vassal directly. Then stipulations, obligations imposed upon and to be accepted by the vassal. And then lastly, the vassal must respond wholeheartedly with all your heart. Failure in this regard was considered a breach of treaty. And we can see all of these elements in the covenant at Sinai. God had used a familiar form to help Israel understand that he was their true king. However, because God is infinitely more powerful than an earthly king, we will see that Sinai completely shattered any comparison with this historical covenant treaty form. In Exodus 19, critical revelations will occur at Mount Sinai. It begins the third and final section of the book of Exodus. A good, line of, a good outline of Exodus is to organize it into these thirds. Uh, Israel in Egypt, uh, chapter, from chapter 1 on to 1230. Then beyond Egypt, from 1231 to the end of 18, leaving us starting here the third section today. Exodus chapters 19 to 40. In Exodus 19, the movement of the Israelites stops from this point all the way through Numbers chapter 10. Sinai stands in the way of Canaan, the land of their inheritance. But it is no diversion, nor is it incidental. Sinai is also familiar ground to Moses who had earlier heard God speaking directly on this mountain from the burning bush. Sinai must be highly significant, so you can hear the theological skid marks in the pacing. Israel stays at Sinai for 11 months of real time. 68 chapters of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, precede this section. 59 chapters will follow it. It is central to the Pentateuch. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings 
and brought you to myself. God saves. God the mighty king defeated Pharaoh and his armies. And the impact of this is that Israel is always to remember their rescue. They had witnessed their deliverance from Egypt just three months ago. Pharaoh was the so-called God king. And Israel did not need weapons to defeat Pharaoh. All they, all they had and all they needed was to be God's people. God and God alone had brought them out of Egypt. It is expressed in Exodus 14.31. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. While Israel remained in Egypt, God had said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. Israel were already saved, my people. Israel were already saved and under God's rule. The the saving came first and then the worship. Other religions reverse this order. You serve or you do things in order to be saved. He bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. Verse 4 has summarized the preamble and prologue components of the Sinai Covenant between God and Israel. And now, in verse 5, there is the stipulations component. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, covenant obedience is required for all that follows. So keep this in mind. If you obey, indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. God, the great king, treasures his people. God's people are described as his own treasure. This is striking. The Hebrew word here is used twice in the Old Testament in a secular way to refer to the royal treasure, to, uh, to royal treasure. We have it in Ecclesiastes 2.8, which says, I amass silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. The reference is to the personal treasure of a king. Israel is God's personal treasure. And then verse 5 concludes, For all the earth is mine. God, the great king, has no geographical boundary lines to his kingdom. Now here again is something totally unique. No human king can say this. Other historical covenant treaties even recognize this because in this regard, they're they're written with a section at the beginning of them that notes that the treaty is to be witnessed by the nation's gods of that uh, sovereign, of that suzerain. Not so in Exodus 19. God is his own witness. He alone is God. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel is to be a kingdom, a royal word, of priests, a holy word. Priests enjoyed a privileged relationship with God, meaning that they may enter into his presence in ways that others cannot. A priest stands between God and others to help bring them closer 
to God and to help teach them God's truth, his justice, his discipline, and his holiness. This was their role. This was Israel's responsibility. This was their challenge. To be able to fulfill this mission and calling will require dedicated and faithful service to God. Faithful service. It is through this faithful service that the kingdom of, the kingdom of priests will reflect their king to each other and to the nations around them. They are to be holy in order to image God to the nations, people reflecting God's glory to the watching world. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. God's people are to be prepared. Moses must purify the people. They must be ready. Well, how are they to prepare? Well, to be ready required a response from their heart. When Moses told them to consecrate themselves and to be ready, Israel would not have understood this merely as a formal ceremony, but one one that called them deeply to the holiness appropriate for a treasured possession and a kingdom of priests. Israel was to, be, was to be prepared to be ready for their king. So think of a time when you really needed to be ready. You thought of something. I can recall my first meeting with a CIO. I had prepared diligently, and I remember walking to, the off, to his office with uh, my manager, Joe. And Joe asked me, are you scared? And I said, yes. And he said, good. Or consider another example familiar to many of us who have been called to jury duty, a courtroom. A courtroom has a somberness about it, doesn't it? And if you're selected as a juror, you must solemnly swear an oath to be truthful. You must be prepared for these occasions. As the creator of mountains, God selects one of them, Sinai, to hold his court. Continuing with verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended on the top of Mount Sinai. The great king is electrifying. The exodus out of Egypt through the parted waters of the Red Sea was an awesome display of power power that was supernatural, and we will see that again here. The experience of Sinai was both frightening and also fascinating. Verse 16 tells us that all the people in the camp trembled. Put yourselves in their trembling sandals for a minute. They trembled not least because they felt the ground itself shaking, but also they saw fire and smoke in the mountain. And they heard 
thunder, an increasingly loud trumpet sound is described. Think of it. We all could use more of this sense of awe and wonder. A Christianity that is flat has lost or abandoned the concept of a God who defies our explanation and our understanding. God transcends all categories in which we might try to box him. Albert Einstein, who had no respect for organized religion, but knew very well what was was behind the molecule was of such infinite power that he described how he would go into churches and see people worshiping and think they can't possibly be worshiping the God that makes all that created all that we see, he thought. Christians of all times must have a vivid sense of God's power and his dominion, of his good rule, his reign, which continues through all time. And we need to work at understanding the words king and kingdom in our day. Their meaning has become diluted, hasn't it? Part of the challenge is the modern usage of the term, and this is going to be... uh, Participation. I'm going to ask two questions, and you are welcome to speak. I'm asking you to speak out loud. Okay, you ready? In uh, in music, who is the king? Elvis. That's my answer. Elvis. And you know, ex- satellite radios, uh, Channel 19, all Elvis all the time. It's actually broadcast from interestingly named Graceland. You know, his home. In basketball, who rules the court? LeBron, King James. King James rules the court. Now, I lived in Chicago for six Michael Jordan World Championships, uh, but LeBron's pretty good as well. (laughs) But anyway, neither LeBron uh, or Elvis or even Michael Jordan can save us. Thankfully, the Westgate Choir has come to our rescue to help us understand these terms. Think back. It was a month ago. I'm looking at, I'm looking at some of the singers. As, uh, this was wonderful. Uh, Ride on King Jesus. Remember that here? It was magnificent. Or last month on our Resurrection Sunday, they sang from the Messiah These words, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever. That's the meaning of kingdom. The Bible throughout expresses God's forever kingdom. I can recall reading to my daughter from a children's Bible when she was five years old. And this section is taken from 2 Samuel 7 from God's covenant with David. And this is what I read to her. Then God surprised David. God promised to build David a house. Not a real house made of bricks or wood, but a kingdom. God's kingdom. And then God surprised David again. God promised him that someone from David's family would live forever as God's king. If that weren't enough, God surprised David again. This forever ruler would be the promised one who would bring God's blessing to all the peoples of the earth. So I asked Audrey, 
And I said, well, who is God going to send? And I remember this well. She replied, himself. Well, that was a good answer. God did send himself. Polycarp, as we began our time this morning remembering, certainly was convinced of this as fact. Consider Polycarp's choice of words, my king and my savior. He knew the reason that he was heading to his death was his confession in a king more powerful than Caesar. So convinced Polycarp was that Jesus was the king who brought a truth from outside the world that he preferred to go to his death rather than deny it. Would Polycarp's confession have led to his death if he believed in a Jesus who only proclaimed love? Jesus' identity as king was scandalous to the ruling groups of the first century. And you can see this in John's Gospel, chapter 18. Let's look Start. Look here, starting at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others, or did others say it to you about me? So Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own uh, nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. The Greek renders not from here. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And then picking up in the next chapter 19, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king uh, is uh, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate feared Caesar more than he feared God, and that is tragic. Consider an earlier ruler of Judea, now King Herod, who was known as King Herod the Great. And his response to Jesus about 30 years earlier from Matthew 2. And there might be a small quiz at the end of this, so you need to follow. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them when the Christ, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, two things must be highlighted here. Here's your quiz. What, At the beginning of this, what is surprising in Matthew's text at the start of chapter 2? What looks surprising to you? Well, at the beginning, you will note that Matthew is no sentimentalist when it comes to Christmas Day. 
he would not be leading any quest to begin Christmas observances in November. In his account, Jesus' birth is given just 15 words. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's it. And then Matthew moves swiftly to make his point. The Magi understand Jesus' identity as king, and so does Herod, but with differing responses. The Magi seek earnestly, I might add, when you consider how far they traveled and the gifts that they brought befitting a king, the Magi seek to worship him. Herod also understands, with the help of those on the court who search the scriptures for him, that a royal messiah, a great king, would come. Even to the detail of the unassuming little village where the great king would be born. Why was this so disturbing to Herod? This, he was the king, and this is a child. It is because Herod knew that if this prophecy was to be fulfilled and this long-promised king had arrived, he knew that he was not the great king. He was not Herod the Great. Now, none of us are earthly rulers here. However, are we seeking to rule over our own lives? Are we building kingdoms here in this world of things that will not last? According to God's covenant, we are God's personal treasure. How much do we treasure him? Are we, caref are we carefully preparing to meet with him? Are we keeping the covenant that he has graciously offered to us? There is a lot at stake, and we need to pay careful attention Exodus 19, we have to get this covenant relationship right. And putting ourselves on the throne in any way at all is harmful. It's very harmful. But having that sense of awe, that remembrance of the majesty of God, helps avoid the dangers of self-service. Well, Hebrews 12 in the New Testament reflects back on Exodus 19. And the ESV version's paragraph heading could not be better worded because it says a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The Hebrews, this Hebrews passage is constructed with a contrast and then a comparison. So first, the contrast, and it is between the Old and New Covenant. So let's read Hebrews 12, from Hebrews 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see the contrast. First, there was a mountain burning with, with uh, fire, storms, loud trumpets, and death for contact with the mountain. Now, there is Mount Zion, a heavenly Jerusalem, and Jesus. If we touch Jesus, we do not need fear dying, because God has sent himself. Then, there is a comparison, and this is uh, 1228. 26. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." In the Old Covenant, people would not escape the one who warned them on earth and escape from the consequences of sin. That is, how much less so under the New Covenant. Our God is a consuming fire. God is holy. He is described as a consuming fire at Sinai, and the same description is used for the time of the new creation. Well, in keeping with the spirit of the book of Hebrews and the cloud of faithful witnesses that have gone before us that is described at the beginning of chapter 12, we'll conclude this morning with the words of a contemporary of Polycarp, and his name is Melito of Sardis. This was written within 10 years of the martyrdom of Polycarp, and this section is taken from the middle of the work. Uh, Paschal homily is the name of the work on the Passover, and it's uh, deliverance of mankind through Christ. So let me read that for you. When this one who came from heaven to earth for the sake of the one who suffers and had clothed himself with that very one through the womb of a virgin, and having come forth as a man, he accepted the sufferings of the sufferer through his body, which was capable of suffering. And he destroyed those human sufferings by his spirit, which was incapable of dying. He killed death, which had put man to death. For this one, who was led away as a lamb and who was sacrificed as a sheep, by himself delivered us from servitude to the world as from the land of Egypt." And released us from bondage to the devil as from the hand of Pharaoh. And sealed our souls by his own spirit and the members of our bodies by his own blood. This is the one who covered death with shame and who plunged the devil into mourning as Moses did Pharaoh. This is the one who smote lawlessness and deprived injustice of its offspring as Moses deprived Egypt. This is the one 
who delivered us from slavery into freedom, from darkness into light, from death into life, from tyranny into an eternal kingdom, and who has made us a new priesthood and a special people forever. I would encourage you to read the whole of this work, Melito's Paschal Homily. There were no intellectual property copyrights in the second century, so you can find this online uh, when you go home for free. I had considered reading the final section of it, which is called The Final Triumph of Christ, but I wasn't sure I could hold myself together. When you read that, you will understand. It is really a glorious work by a Christian, and it's so glorious because Melito got it. He understood this king who is above all kings, who created the world, and who will someday set all things right. So let us close in prayer to him. Our great Heavenly Father, you are the King. There is none like you. Thank you for your word and the truth that it declares. Thank you for Jesus, our true hope and only hope in this world. Lord, praise you. Praise you for what you have done for us. And may we uh, be obedient to you and to uh, just honor you and go forward, uh, putting you first in our lives and treasuring you. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.